Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Kerry Holbrook to tell us all about her fascinating book published by Cambridge University Press in 2023 titled Ritual Litter Redressed, um, which is super cool because ritual deposition is not something necessarily at top of mind, and particularly in many countries in the Western world, um, ritual sounds old fashioned, you know, centuries old, not something we do now. And yet, as Carrie talks about in the book, um, we actually very much do this now, from love locks on bridges to roadside memorials and much more. And so this book gives us quite a lot to think about and I think also to notice in our daily surroundings. So Carrie, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Before we get into all things ritual litter, however, would you mind please introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this? Absolutely. So I am a um, programme leader for the Folklore Studies Masters at the University of Hertfordshire. Um, and I did my PhD in archaeology, um, partly because I was interested in material culture, but also because my interests fit between so many disciplines. Um, it was difficult to know where to put me. But I ended up in um, archaeology. And I was really interested in looking at um, contemporary folklore, contemporary rituals and popular beliefs um, and how we can access them through through using material culture. Um, and what struck me kind of during my research into the material culture of ritual was how differently historic objects um, and prehistoric objects are treated compared to contemporary objects. Um, so historic votive deposits and offerings, um, they're very much treated like kind of precious treasures, preserved, accessioned into museums, studied, protected, whereas contemporary votive deposits are generally discouraged, discarded and labelled litter. Um, and I wanted to know firstly kind of why this distinction is made um, and what we can do to, I guess, change it, change those associations. Well, one step to changing it is being aware of them. Um, and your book very helpfully starts us off there. Um, I'd love to maybe begin our conversation about the book with the title, um, as it is one of the first things that people would see. Can you walk us through, obviously in an audio format, it's hard to tell, um, but in the book on the title page, the phrase ritual litter is in quotes um, or inverted commas. Why? It's mainly to... I guess, indicate that it's a subjective term, that it's a contentious term, um, not one that everyone agrees with using um, and not one that I necessarily agree with using. Um, but it's such a, an important part in thinking about um, how these objects are perceived and treated that it, it needed to be included. Um, and I think, I mean, litter itself is such a... Um, it's such a pejorative term, you know, it's, it's describing something as, as rubbish, as um, things that are discarded across, you know, a public space that aren't wanted, um, that are disorderly. Um, so something that's, it's very much negative. So um, I really wanted to get just kind of just in the title, um, kind of that I was disagreeing with it. And that's the, the book is about disagreeing with that term. Mm. 
no, great to have that literally right up front, the first thing to show. So then given that this is contested, how do you define ritual litter in the book? Um, so I define kind of ritual litter as 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 other people have used it as any object. Um, so any example of material culture that's been left deposited in a public space for a ritual purpose. Um, and when I say ritual, I mean, um, I think my definition in the book, and I, I, I try to kind of stick to that definition because it's such a ritual, such a difficult term to define. Um, but my working one is um, intentional, stylized, performative activities that draw on symbolism to make recourse to mystical or preternatural powers. Um, that's far from comprehensive in terms of uh, my definition of ritual, but that's that's the one I'm working from. And litter tends to be applied to objects that are, um, I guess, unsanctioned. They're, they're either unsanctioned objects or they're in an unsanctioned space. Um, and that's that's how other people use it. And that's, that's the definition I'm working from in the book. Got it. Um, thank you for taking us through sort of the contested nature of it and the definition so that to give us a bit of grounding, really, um, of what it is we're talking about. In a similar sort of vein, can you introduce us to some of the key ideas? If we know sort of what we're talking about, what about where, who, why? Absolutely. So there are there are so many categories um, to ritual litter. Um, one of them is um, contemporary pagans, so objects that are placed in a space by contemporary pagans who are performing um, ceremonies in a, in, a, in a space that they consider sacred. Um, so that might be um, a historic or prehistoric site like stone circles or a modern day site um, that they've deemed sacred to them. Um, so it's any objects that 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 those groups tend to leave um, are often viewed as ritual litter by other community members. Um, another category is commemorative objects, um, so objects left in in memorial for somebody um, when they're left in unsanctioned places, um, so not left at a, a grave. Um, but left in another kind of public space, or they are left at a grave, but they're unsanctioned objects. Um, so, for instance, um, they may be objects that are left for a celebrity who's passed away, a, a well-known prominent figure. Um, they may be objects that are left outside their home or at a site that's associated with them um, or their work um, or or their grave or it could be after um, a tragic event so roadside memorials um, objects left um, following a, a traffic accident for instance uh, and then large-scale memorials that are left in public spaces after things like um, uh, big natural disasters or terror attacks um, so that's that's another category and these are left by by mourners um, not necessarily people who even ever met somebody who you know who was affected by that tragedy but want want to kind of show their sympathy and support um another category are rituals for look or for wish making um which are prevalent today so things like coins that are thrown into fountains or hammered into coin trees to make wishes um and these tend to be performed um by tourists or by families with, with children who want to participate in the custom 
Um, and then there are rituals for love. So you've mentioned love locks. Um, these are the padlocks that are inscribed with names, initials, dates, um, and attached to bridges, other public structures worldwide, um, usually by couples who want to kind of ritually declare their their romantic commitment to each other. Um, so the, the the love lock, the padlock is is one of the examples that that's deemed ritual litter, as is the key. So you're supposed to lock the padlock in place and then throw the key into the river below um, or the canyon below or the sea in front of you. Um, so that's another example then of ritual litter. So it's it's a huge, ritual litter is a huge umbrella term. Um, and it was difficult to um, kind of talk about all of it in quite a small book. Um, but I, I try to um, touch on, on each of these examples because the, the why behind them and the who are different for each of them. The emotions behind each of these categories will be will be very very different. So from kind of just wanting to uh, make a wish and indulge a child in a in a ritual to wanting to um, declare commitment to wanting to to um, kind of enact the mourning of somebody to performing a, a sacred ceremony and um, all very very different categories but they just get, tend to get lumped together as ritual litter that's a great um sort of array of examples as well as very clearly demonstrates the challenge of talking about this category as if it was all sort of the same um but even from some of those examples there's a few kind of common objects that are turning up and you go into more detail in the book about kind of the most frequent types of things that turn up in these different areas. Can you maybe expand a bit and tell us about what those are, those objects, and why you think they are particularly common? Um, I think so. Probably the most common object um, used in in ritual today and deemed ritual litter are coins. Um, They're popular as ritual deposits um, for a variety of reasons. Um, Again, probably depending on, on who is doing it, who's doing the ritual, um, partly because of their long history in ritual. Coins have been used for um, centuries in these kinds of rituals, used for healing historically, used for protection. So they are used as apotropaic devices, kind of evil averting objects, um, and for bringing luck and for wish-making. Um, so it's drawing on this long history. Um, also because of what they represent. So coins represent exchange. They represent um, you giving something up that's that's of value in order to get something back. And that's what most rituals are about. You're you're giving something up to get something. Um, So, you know, just its kind of secular purpose translates really well um, to kind of a ritual purpose. Um, And they're also very common because they're very common. Um, You know, up until fairly recently, most people would have had coins in their pocket or their purse. So if they happen to come across, you know, a wishing well or um, a coin tree or another site that, you know, other people had left offerings, a coin was the handiest object to use because you had some and you had some spare. You know, the, the, the value of a penny or a two penny piece are you know, quite minimal today. So it's something easily given up that you often tend to have on you. Um, Obviously, that's going to change. Uh, I 
every year I um, kind of survey my students when I'm when I'm giving this talk about kind of the ritual uses of coins. And I ask them, um, you know, how many here have got coins on you at this moment? Up until maybe two years ago, most people in the room would put their hand up and say, yeah, I've got I've got some coins this year. Nobody. Nobody had coins on them. Um, and that's partly because kind of our campus has gone completely cashless um, and society is going that way, at least in Britain. So it will be interesting to see what happens to these rituals um, that, you know, really focus on coins. Once coins become kind of redundant, we stop carrying them. Um they're considered um, probably one of the more problematic uh, examples of ritual litter because of the damage they can do. Um, coins may not look like they can do much damage, but if you hammer enough into a tree, they can eventually kill it, um, which is why in terms of coin trees, uh, authorities tend to ask people to only hammer coins into, um, say, logs and stumps rather than living trees. Um, if they're pushed into um, stones... Um, so stones in a stone circle, for instance, then they can stain it and they can damage the stones if wedged into cracks. Um, and they're not good. They're just not good generally for the environment if they're being tossed into rivers and pools. Um, and this is why you'll often see signs asking people not to not to toss coins into kind of bodies of water, um, but instead maybe to leave them in the, the handy nearby collection box instead, which is much more um you know, environmentally sustainable, and also it means that the coins can can go to something good. Um, so yeah, I'd say coins are the most common object. Hmm. I think it will be really interesting, as you said, to see what happens given how many fewer people are um, carrying around coins. I mean, what what else is in our pockets that people would be willing to give up so easily in this sort of um, manner? I guess we'll we'll have to see, uh, which should be quite interesting. Um, I'd love to ask you maybe a bit more about something you mentioned right at the beginning that kind of motivated your study, right? That old things are seen as a ritual deposit and not quite sacred, but fancy, not rubbish, certainly. Um, whereas today we might more frequently see things as litter or rubbish. Is that the main reason that things might be defined as one versus the other, just how old they are? What are the other kinds of reasons that might make this determination? Absolutely. So, I mean, age is definitely a big factor. Um, there is something kind of authenticating in age. It's allowed to be there um, if it's old. You see it at the same kind of... Um, there are sites in America where there are kind of these historic petroglyphs carved into the rocks. Um, they're you know, seen as, as beautiful. Graffiti, on the other hand, so anything that's kind of post-1950s is seen as graffiti and scrubbed away. So definitely kind of in terms of age, there is there is value attributed to it. Um, but it's also about what's what's sanctioned, what kind of um, the, the owners or the managers of a space permit to be in that space or expect to be in that space. So for instance, you can leave a candle in a church that's expected, that's allowed in most cases. Leaving a candle inside a stone circle isn't sanctioned, that's not allowed. So it's not necessarily the nature of the object, but the nature of the place. Leaving flowers at a grave 
is expected is allowed because of the long history of flowers in mourning um, and also because they will um, decay, they will decompose. But leaving other objects at the grave of maybe somebody you don't know, a celebrity, isn't generally allowed. Um, So, for instance, um, people leave whiskey bottles at the grave of Jim Morrison in Paris. Those are removed Um, leaving um, packets of cigarettes at the statue of Amy Winehouse. Those tend to be removed. So it's really about um, how appropriate the object is seen as being in that particular space. And it's so subjective. And that's why in some instances, you know, ritual deposits are, are still respected, even if they're contemporary, whereas in other spaces, it's litter and it's it's removed. And so is it as simple as if it's classified as litter, therefore it is re- it is removed? And if it is not litter, then therefore it stays? Is it that straightforward? No, no, it's not. It's not simple at all. Um, if objects are causing obvious damage, um, so if there's clear damage being done to a structure or a space because of the deposits, no matter how much kind of respect these objects are given, they they tend to be removed. Um, so, for instance, the love locks on the Pont des Arts in Paris, um, they broke a panel of the bridge because there were so many of them. So it was a you know a clear decision. It was the right decision to to remove them because it would damage the structure and it would be dangerous dangerous to to people um but otherwise it's it's all down to individual sites um how they're managed and and who they're managed by even within the same organizations there'll be different approaches to how these objects are looked at and and treated so you know one national trust worker might see coins in a coin tree as litter and remove them and put up signs telling people not to do it Another national trust worker might think that it's a, a nice example of a ritual, a harmless example, um, and let it grow and see it as kind of a, a quirky addition to the site that might be used as a, a kind of attraction to get more people coming and going down that particular path and seeing the, the beautiful spaces. Um, so it's it's not even just down to um, different organisations and different local authorities. It is down to individuals and their own kind of personal response to it. Mm, That is more complicated, um, but also more interesting. So thank you for taking us through that. Um, We've sort of been talking so far as if it's kind of a dichotomy, either let them stay where they are or remove them and bin them. But you talk about in the book that sometimes there is a third option, that ritual litter might be moved to a museum or preserved somewhere else. When and why might items that are being considered as ritual litter be instead of binned and thrown away moved and kept yeah so i mean again it's it's all down to individual sites um and the um their policies but often they don't have policies in place and they have to kind of come together and decide as a group what they're going to do with it and um, but often they're not simply destroyed um the vast majority of cases they're not they're not just you know, thrown away. Um, you know, even if the people who are collecting them up disapprove of them being there, they don't tend to like destroying them. There is um, acknowledgement that they mean something to people, um, or even that they can be put to good use. Um, so coins, for instance, are often used. They're, you know, they revert back to their kind of secular use. Um, they become currency again. Um, so those coins that are thrown into, say, um, the Trevi Fountain, 
um, and other sites like that. They will be gathered up regularly and they'll go to local charities or um, they'll go towards the upkeep of the site. So, you know, they'll be used again. Um, others can be kind of creatively used for good causes. So um, love locks are a really good example of that, um, where uh, in a lot of places where love locks have been removed en masse, local authorities have come up with creative ways of kind of reusing them. So in Paris, they um, kind of turned them into um, sculptures, pieces of art where they they, they created frames and the, the, the love locks would hang from them um, from just a, a couple to kind of large sections. And then they all went to um, an auction and all the proceeds went to um, refugee charities and they made a huge amount. I can't remember the exact figure, but it was it was in the thousands. The thousands of euros um, were made for this. That all went to good causes. Um, and in um, Melbourne, for instance, when they removed their love locks, um, they commissioned some local artists to um, kind of repurpose them and you know reinterpret them and turn them into kind of public works of art. And um, you know, one artist turned them into a, a, a so sort of smelted them down and, and recrafted a, a, a big bell out of them. Um, another one turned them into a huge um, necklace, drawing on the the folk custom of um, coin pendants that were given to um, convicts going off to Australia. So drawing on kind of Australian um, folk practices, repurposing them for that. And then all these sculptures went on public display. Um, people came and saw them, um, entered a, a kind of prize draw again with all the proceeds going to charity. And then the winners were just kind of drawn out of a hat and they got to take those sculptures home with them. Um, so the bell, for instance, is in one woman's um, garden, her front garden. And she's very, very proud of it. She's so proud to have kind of a piece of Melbourne's heritage, as she called it, um, for anyone who comes to visit her to pass and they can ding the bell. Um, and that is that is somebody's love locks. Um, rags uh, in other sites when they've been removed um, in Cornwall, for instance, um, rags and strips of cloth and ribbons tied to trees. When they've been removed, um, a, a local artist has has taken them and and turned them into beautiful pieces of art. So they 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 can be kind of just entirely transformed into something that's that's creative um, and beautiful and maybe going to a good cause. In other instances, they're accessioned into um, museums. Um, so one example of this is the, the mass memorial offerings left after the Manchester Arena bombing. Um, so, I mean, they, they were mainly flowers, which couldn't be preserved. Um, but all the other objects, the notes, the teddy bears, um, these were collected by um, staff at the University of Manchester and students um, and other local organisations and they were all accessioned into Manchester Art Gallery, um, who got the money for it from the National Lottery Heritage Fund to do this. So there is clearly kind of the recognition that these types of objects do need to be um, collected and preserved and made available to the public um, or to researchers. But few few do end up permanently accessioned into museum collections, um, but more because they don't have either the funds or the space to take it all. Um, so even though I'm sure most museums would, would, would love to, to take them all in, 
um, to recognise the value. They simply don't have the, the money or the space. But I do know that some local archives gathered up, um, say, a lot of the public, public memorial offerings left for the Queen. Um, so they have kind of there are small collections of notes and teddy bears and, and drawings that were left um, in the period of, of mourning for the Queen that are kind of scattered around local archives across the country. That's absolutely fascinating. And I think it's important to highlight kind of the the different options, the sort of the statue in the garden that people are proud of versus the real realities of funding um, and space constraints. Um, You talk about in the book, though, obviously, it's not just those things that museums have to contend with when deciding uh, whether to preserve these sorts of things, what to do with them. Can you walk us through both some of the other practical considerations as well as potentially some ethical concerns that museums might want to consider? Absolutely. So um, in terms of space, so I, I mentioned that some museums don't have the space to take them in, but if they have the space to take some in, you know, they might not have room for all of it. How do you choose what to keep and what to discard, you know, that's a really tough choice. And a lot of people who've, who've had to make those decisions have talked about how difficult it was to decide, oh, we'll keep that note, but we'll throw that note away. We'll keep that teddy bear, but that, that teddy bear has been too damaged by the weather. We'll throw that one away. Um, so that's always a really difficult decision if not everything can be kept. Um, the, the other ethical thing is, you know, do they have the right to remove them? Um you know, these are, you know, particularly when it comes to memorial offerings, who has the right to remove them? At what point do you start to remove them? You know, is there a kind of a, an official period of mourning and once that's over, you know, they stop being memorial offerings and they're kind of, it's the right of local authorities and museums to, to remove them. Um you know, they are, again, personal offerings. The people who left them there haven't given their permission for those those objects to be accessioned. Um, have they kind of given up that right once they've left that object in a public space um, is, a, is another question. And should they be put on public view? So if they're, if they're very personal offerings, should they be, you know, open to anybody to come and see them? Um, what to do with kind of the perishable objects um so flowers for instance are you know the, the vast majority of memorial offerings are are flowers how should they be treated should they just be allowed to rot um in a lot of cases they're gathered up and and repurposed kind of as as compost um in other instances they've been dried and turned into to potpourri and then given out to say um family members of the deceased um, so again, kind of creative ideas. I know that the flowers that were left for the Queen, um, they were gathered up and, and turned into compost for um, kind of national gardens. So they were reused. Um, and then what about the more obscene offerings? You know, some things that really, um, you know, a, a museum might not even want to touch, let alone accession. Um, so for instance, at the Glastonbury Fawn, um, the tree in Glastonbury that has um, lots of ribbons and rags tied to it, um, and also condoms have been found left at the site. You know, how do you distinguish between something that has kind of a lot of ritual meaning behind it and therefore should be preserved to something that might just be 
somebody had a party or somebody threw their rubbish away or somebody wanted to leave something that was shocking and obscene. What do you do? You know, if you're preserving the rags, do you preserve the condoms? Um, so, you know, these are questions that um, people have had to ask themselves. Um, and it's like I said, there isn't um, like a written instruction manual that tells you something that they you know all these different um institutions organizations and even just groups of private individuals have to decide amongst themselves how they're going to treat this wide variety of objects that's i can even just imagine any one of those things you've just mentioned being months of decision making um and really no clear answer um so thank you for kind of raising them and putting those questions on the table um obviously that kind of list of questions is most relevant to museums to curators to anyone in that sort of position but i think there's a number of things from the book that are relevant to anyone who's listening whether or not they're in charge of museum acquisitions what are some of the things you'd like listeners to consider next time they see or maybe even participate in any of these kinds of rituals i think um so to remember if you're, if you're seeing them or you're seeing the, um, the remains of one of these kinds of rituals, remember that they are rituals, um, that they're no less authentic, and I put that, that word in um, quotation marks as well, as rituals um, than those of the past. So just because it's happening now doesn't mean that it deserves less respect than rituals of the past or rituals in a more kind of sanctioned area like rituals in a church, for instance, or a, a mosque or a synagogue. You know, these people are performing this ritual because it means something to them and they they have value as something telling us something about people's belief systems and their values today. Um, and how is that not important? You know, it's it's worthy of our attention you know, thinking about what people believe in and how they're interacting with these spaces and how they're expressing their belief systems. Um, and also kind of I'd ask people to remember that there, there may be a lot more emotional meaning behind an object than people realise, behind something that you may think of as, as litter or graffiti. Um, love locks are a prime example of this. They're so often viewed as graffiti because they're eyesores or they're um, damaging the structure. Um, but they mean a lot to to a lot of the people who placed them there. Um, there have been so many examples of people going back to, to revisit their love lock after they've left it in place, maybe a year later on the anniversary. Um, stories of people whose partners have, have sadly passed away who make kind of annual pilgrimages to kind of revisit their love lock and are devastated when they see that they've been removed. Um, or if they have been removed by authorities, um, going to collect them. So not just thinking, oh, well, you know, it, it didn't matter that much anyway. They're making the, you know, the effort to go to whatever building the local authority have put them in to, to collect them and to maybe kind of re-deposit them somewhere or to have them framed in their home or placed in a box of keepsakes. You know, this all speaks to a lot more emotion and a lot more attachment um, and investment than just simple you know, oh, I just wanted to, to join in because everyone else had done it. So I'm just going to follow the crowd, um, which is what a lot of people think of when they think of, of love locks and, and ritual litter more generally. Um, so don't assume that just because something is modern and common, um, it wasn't special to the person who put it there. Um, 
And if it is removed for whatever reason, um, and there are plenty of valid reasons to remove them, um, then they should be preserved. Um, they certainly should be photographed before they're removed so that we have um, some kind of record of how they were placed in that space. Um, so at least you're kind of digitally preserving them in, in place. And then um, the depositors, whoever left them there, should be given the option of, of retrieving them, of you know, turning them into a keepsake or, or you know, holding on to something that's, that's special to them. If you're um, kind of participating in this kind of ritual, then I guess I would ask only that you consider the environment, the environmental impact of, of what you're leaving in place. Um, so, for instance, recently, um, the Grand Canyon National Park have been um, having problems with people leaving love locks on the fences at the edge of the canyon and then throwing the key into the canyon itself. And they're concerned that some of the birds um, that live there might try and eat the keys, um, which obviously wouldn't wouldn't be good. Um, so they're asking people not not to leave love locks there um, or if they do to not not throw the key away. Um, and obviously, you know, it, it is always better to leave an offering that, um, you know, that works with your ritual, but also that won't damage the structure. Um, a lot of contemporary pagan groups really encourage the use of um, decomposable materials. So um, deposit flowers rather than um, other objects like coins. Um, if, you, if you take candles, make sure that you know, they're not just placed onto a stone structure and then all the wax goes on and then you just leave it there. If you do take candles for some kind of ceremony, you take, you know, leave the flowers in place, but take the tea light holders away with you. Um, so, you know, the groups who are doing it are, are thinking about the, you know, the, the environmental impact of what they're doing and I think it is important to you know to keep the ritual true to yourself and to your beliefs and to your intentions but also do think about um the space that you're you're doing in and and how you can have least negative impact on that space that's I think a really wonderful list of things to consider um kind of for both sides the participations and the viewers um and I think speaks very much to at least some of the contributions the book is making. Um, I think it's worth highlighting to listeners that this book, despite the number of things we've discussed, um, is not like 500 pages. It's very readable. If anyone is intrigued, um, I would definitely recommend going and picking it up to investigate further. Um, but before I let you, Carrie, go, go after sharing all this very helpful information with us, is there anything you might be working on now or next after this book, since this book is done? whether or not it's a book whether or not it's on ritual litter yeah so um my project at the moment um which is quite timely is um i'm looking at letters that were written to father christmas um which is um i guess uh, quite a far cry from ritual litter but at the same time it's um another example of a, a folk practice that tends to get overlooked often as a folk practice um children have been writing letters to father christmas santa for um over a century now and Children are so underrepresented in terms of looking at them historically, looking at their own experiences and today. And these tend to be kind of primary sources, primary historical sources that are 
penned by the children themselves that give a real insight into what the children wanted so their material desires and you know children aren't more materialistic now they've always they've always been asking for stuff um but what they've been asking for has changed and you can see kind of how um just kind of the economy and the toy industry um and even kind of um associations between genders and ages have changed over time by kind of tracing these letters um, but they also give really kind of precious insights into um, the children's lives um, the family members who are helping them write their letter um, their homes um, and the fact that you know come the 1980s most children were writing oh we don't have a fireplace anymore so don't come down the chimney um and things like that. And also, you know, some really sad ones that talk about, um, you know, historic ones, how kind of my father was in the war. Um, can we help him find a job? Things like that. So they're, they're really precious um, items that aren't that accessible because um, a lot of the archives that hold them, um, and fortunately they have been archived um, in a lot of cases, um, they don't, they're so worried about kind of GDPR and the fact that these are documents produced by children who didn't give their permission and their their guardians didn't give permission that they don't, they're worried about making them accessible. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of looking into kind of the ethics of this, um, kind of weighing up that protection. Obviously, I'm not suggesting that children's letters that have their name and addresses on should be digitised, um, but whether we could make some details of them, like what they were asking for, um, available for researchers, just to really help um, kind of historians, social historians, um, cultural scholars to to access children, um, access their their lives, their beliefs, their systems, their you know um, how they they were living and how they're living now. Um, one archive um, gathered up the uh, letters to Father Christmas written during um, lockdown during the, the pandemic, and those letters are incredible in terms of showing us how children were responding to the pandemic, how they were seeing it, how they were suffering from just from lockdown um, and how kind of Santa Father Christmas became a kind of therapist, a therapist pen pal. Um, the letters that children were writing during lockdown were a lot longer um, a lot more detailed about what they'd done that year and how they were coping um, so I can completely understand why very personal letters wouldn't want to be kind of, they, they, you know, you wouldn't want to digitise them. But at the same time, they're such important sources um, that I think it's important that that local archives at least keep them um, while they discuss the ethics of making them accessible. Um, and also on a completely different note, um, I've, I've used kind of some of my research in um, a novel that, that was published last month. So my first ever novel, which I'm very excited about, um, called Winter's Wishful. And that draws on my research into um, letters to Father Christmas. So I, I never kind of reproduce a letter that I've found, but in terms of the senses that I was getting from them, in terms of the type of language that was being used and the types of things were being asked for, I've kind of... Um, uh, kind of intertwined with a, a fictional story. Um, so that is, that's that's out now. And I believe it was 99p for the, for the Black Friday sale um, yesterday. So um, 
yeah, and I, I really enjoyed the experience of taking um, kind of scholarly research and twisting it and turning it into something that's um, for an entirely different audience, but still hopefully gets them thinking about the value of archives and the value of preserving things. Very cool projects. Thank you so much for, um, in the first case, sharing a sneak preview with us and in the latter case, um, telling us about the book that is available. So thank you for that. Um, Your novel is available, as you've just mentioned, but of course the book we've been discussing is also out there if people want to investigate further. Again, titled Ritual Litter Redressed, published by Cambridge University Press. Carrie, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.